Welcome to the Garbage Pod. 29 and 28. Remanded in custody. There's something curious about this broadcast. Hello everybody and welcome to episode 39 of the Garbage Pod. Um, It's a bit of an impromptu show uh, this week and um, you join me in the the gardens of the the Owlsbury Studios of Spamhead Productions and um, joining me on the show today is uh, Audrey Ballhawk-Mallows. How are you doing sir? I'm doing very good, thank you very much, boss. How about yourself? <laughs> Excellent. As you say, the sun's out, we're out, out in the gardens, we're having a drink, and um, all's well. Absolutely, it's always great to be out of recording weather such as this, so uh, <laughs> long may it continue, even though we are steadily flying towards September, but let's hope we have a, a nice winter. That's it. Now, the reason why I mentioned that this is a, an impromptu show is that, um, well, the young bullhawk here has... Um, well, pretty much sprung a, a surprise on me, haven't you? I have indeed. You see, I was invited to the launch of a new venture in London, and it dawned on me, why don't I record this for the Garbage Pod? So I had this idea when I was leaving my work, leaving work on the way to the launch, just decided, wouldn't it be great to record outside and record the, the new venture? So the boss here got a nice little text saying how do i record outside (laughs) (laughs) it's basically you just wanted to know how to to keep the recording levels at the 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 right peak and um what to do to avoid um wind noise and different bits and pieces um uh, which got me wondering what the hell is going on basically but i wanted to keep it close to my chest because i thought it'd be nice to surprise you with some additional content as you know our, our input is your output or you know is the, the show's motto so I thought well if I keep this one close to my chest and then see what he thinks once it's all recorded see what he thinks of the young bullhawk skills well originally uh, Adri wanted to put this out as a, um, a TGP extra but there is so much content uh, in this piece that I thought it deserved a place as a, as a proper show um, so um, I'll let you do an intro and uh, we'll go from there Absolutely, thank you very much, boss. A pleasure. So, the special episode or the impromptu episode of the Garbage Pod was a launch of a new venture in London. So, join me now as I go into London to find out what the talk of the town really is all about. As you can tell by the hustle and bustle, I've made it here to Piccadilly Circus in our nation's capital, and I'm sure you're wondering by now what I'm doing here. The answer is simple. I'm here to experience a high society tour, courtesy of Talk of the Town London. Join me on this epic voyage across London sites. Um, my name is John. I think I've introduced myself to most of you guys. Um, if I haven't, I apologise. Uh, I'm going to be your tour guide today. So, um, 
Uh, welcome to our first Talk of the Town London tour. It's very exciting. Um, uh, for those of you um, who don't know me, um, I'm a tour guide, obviously. Um, uh, I'm an actor by profession. I've been tour guiding for around five years now. Um, uh, when I'm uh, Oh, acting, I'm not tour guiding obviously uh, when I'm tour guiding I am still acting a bit so it all works very well together um, uh, Kay I think most of you know um, who uh, has uh, organised this whole thing which is uh, lovely, some of you know her some of you have just met her, uh, wonderful um, and Steph is our other tour guide with Talk of the Town London as well so if you have any questions about Talk of the Town uh, please uh, maybe not ask me in the next couple of hours but ask one of these two, I'm sure that we aren't uh, able to answer anything, um, but please Please, ladies and gentlemen, ask me questions on the tour, right? I always say that. Um, it keeps me on my toes, right? Otherwise, I get very complacent. I just stick to a script, right? Uh, so please throw anything at me. Um, the weirder and wackier the question, the better it is for me, right? Um, if I don't know the answer, I'll just make it up. You'll never know. It's fine. Um, that was a joke. Sorry. <laughs> Something looking very disapproving. Um, I'll, uh, I'll Google it, right? That's what the internet's for. Um, but uh, no, please, ladies and gentlemen, anything about this tour, about London, um, uh, we do tours all across. London, so uh, I like to think I know everything about the city, which obviously is a lie. Um, uh, but uh, uh, but please ask me questions and Kay and Steph about uh, what talk of the town is and how we're operating as a company. But uh, welcome to the High Society tour, right? Okay, so um, when I was thinking about a tour to put together for Talk of the Town, um, High Society was something that really caught my imagination uh, because. It's, uh, it's that quintessentially British thing, right? Everybody talks about how high society. You only need to look to uh, things like Downton Abbey, Pride and Prejudice, right? To see how many foreigners and uh, British people are enamoured with the high society of London, right? And that's exactly what this tour is going to be about today. Uh, we're going to be walking around a very small part of London, not very big at all. Uh, it's called St. James's, the area. Um, but to me, it is ultimately um, one of the most fascinating parts of the city. It's one of the parts of London that I think uh, falls through the net a bit, right? Uh, people know Buckingham Palace on the other side. People know Piccadilly Circus. But nobody really knows much in between, right? And uh, we're going to be discovering some of those crevices today, right? Um, so what do, I need, what do I mean by high society, right? Um, well, it's, it's pretty simple. It, it's the top 1%, right? The top 1%. That's, that's what we're going to be looking at today. Um, now, I, I think it's very important to stress... High society is nothing new, right? Um, uh, I mean, we've always had a high society. From the earliest moments of civilization, people have looked to the, the wealthiest and the, the richest and the people in power, for example, right? Um, and even nowadays, right? Made in Chelsea, you know, all those kind of things. Um, celebrity culture. A lot of people moan to me about celebrity culture, right? Oh, modern age and celebrity culture. It is nothing new, ladies and gentlemen, right? Today we're going to be discovering um, the Paris Hiltons and the Kim Kardashians of 200 years ago, okay? They existed back then. Um, the one difference is they showed a, a bit less flesh, I like to think, right? But, but they were certainly around, okay? Um, and we're going to be focusing on a specific period of history. Uh, 1616, right? Um, momentous year. Uh, the restoration, right? King Charles II is restored to the throne after quite a few dull years of being a republic. I, I love it, right? We, we tried republicanism for a small amount of period and then British people are like, no, not having any of that anymore. Bring back the monarchy, right? So King Charles is invited back to be king and he changes society right um, we go from one extreme which is cancelling Christmas and banning dancing to another extreme which is theatres um, pubs drinking whoring gambling um, 
corruption on the highest level, right? Um, so that's where we're starting the tour. And we're running all the way until the beginning of the Victorian era, 1837. So 160 years that, in my opinion, really epitomizes uh, a massive change in British society, right? And uh, we're going to be going in that direction. Uh, um, I choose to start the tour here because, I mean, if you just look around you now, right, um, this is modern London. Uh, we've got everything in this quarter. We've got uh, um, uh, Michelin-starred restaurants. We've got theatres. We've got Ripley's, believe it or not. Uh, we've got Piccadilly Circus, right? Uh, we've got sports shops. We've got everything that modern London is right here. Uh, in this spot. Um, but we're going to be taking a step back 200 years into history um, where this part of London was very, very exclusive, right? Uh, King Charles II, when he came back to the throne, he moved into St. James's Palace, right? Um, which is just down the road over there. Um, and at that point, this was nothing later. This was a big field, right? Uh, St. James's Field. Uh, take away everything. You've got to use your imagination a bit, right? Take it all away. Um, this was a big field. And um, a man called the Duke of St. Albans, Henry German, right, German Street, just down the road over there, um, uh, decided he was going to build um, uh, an enclave for the rich, right? Think of a housing estate. It was like that, but for very, very wealthy people. Um, and one of the first residents, I love this, right? He's building a, 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 an estate for the rich and the wealthy, and the first resident is a prostitute, ladies and gentlemen. Her name is Mole Davis, Mary Mole Davis, one of the um, uh, mistresses of of King Charles II, uh, who his wife uh, referred to as the most impertinent slut in the world, right? She was one of the first people to buy a plot of land and build a house right over here. So you've got, you've got that dichotomy, right? First person to build a house there um, in the new enclave of St. James's. And uh, by 1837, the start of Victorian era, this is the most exclusive residence in London, right? And that's what we're going to be discovering today. Um, so we are going to be uh, going in that direction. We're going to be crossing the road. Uh, we cross a few roads today, ladies and gentlemen. Um, normally, when I've got foreigners on my tour, I've got to warn them about looking the wrong way, right? But everybody knows which direction to look in today. So that's fine, uh, apart from a few people, right? Yeah. Um, right hand, look right, ladies and gentlemen. I mean, look the right way, right? So look left. Um, uh, but uh, there is a big group of us today. Uh, so I've got my friend Freddie here. Uh, I'll be waving him up in the air um, around. So if you lose me at any point, just look for his head uh, bobbing up and down, right? Um, okay, fantastic. Do you have any questions before we go on to our first stop? No, wonderful. Okay, we're heading this way, ladies and gentlemen. Follow me this way. But let's talk about houses, ladies and gentlemen, right? Because um, you can't talk about house society, high society, without talking about the houses they lived in, right? Because the houses really define what high society was about. We, we've all, I'm sure, at some point in our lives visited a grand country estate, right? And uh, heard and read about the, the lords, the dukes, the earls, the barons that occupied them and the vast, um, vast amount of land that they owned, right? Um, but all of these wealthy landed families had city houses too, right? Um, and of course their city houses were incredibly important. Um, it was almost what defined a family. You had your country estate, and of course which county you had that estate in was very important. But also uh, where in London your city house was, was incredibly important too, right? 
Um, and the reason I bring this up on this tour is uh, we touched on it, but this was one of the most exclusive addresses in London. So um, I've talked about Henry German, who uh, uh, bought some land here and started building this area. But the, the first man to really build a house on this spot um, was somebody called Robert Baker, right? 1621. Now, Robert Baker was a very famous man here in London um, because he pioneered something called the Piccadill, right? Now, for anybody who's watched a period drama, you'll have seen a Piccadill. Uh, because it was the, the very high starched white collars that used to be worn by men and women, right? Um, the Piccadilly was very, very important. You wouldn't leave the house without a Piccadilly, right? Um, it was that important to your dress. Um, and Robert Baker was the man to buy a Piccadilly from in London, right? Um, so for a period of a um, uh, hundred years, the Piccadilly was the must-have fashion item. Robert Baker pioneered it. He made a lot of money, right? And he was the first man to buy a plot of land over here and built a house. Now, Piccadilly, of course, the name of the street is Piccadilly, right? So, of course, you can see the instant connection. Um, and that was 1621, of course. 40 years later, uh, Henry German comes along and the, re the development of this whole area starts. And um, this street became the site for some of the most beautiful mansions uh, of some of the wealthiest families in the country. None of them, unfortunately, remain to stay apart from Burlington House, which is uh, just down over there, um, uh, which uh, we'll walk past in a second and you can see a really great example of, of the kind of mansions that dotted this whole area. Now, of course, you would come down to London for a very small period, okay? It was known as the it was incredible. It was like, um, think of Magaluf, ladies and gentlemen. That's what the season was. I, I'm not joking, right? Um, uh, again, a lot of people think this kind of um, uh, modern drinking, partying, that kind of culture is something that's uh, a, a modern uh, craze, but it really wasn't, right? Uh, we'll touch on the season a bit later on. Um, but uh, you came down to London for the season. Now, obviously, if you're from a, a wealthy family and everything like that, you have your city house. But if you were a bachelor, right? Uh, or a gentleman, as they prefer to be called, uh, preferred to be called. Uh, you didn't have a big house, right? Um, often you may not have come from a titled uh, family, but you played with the big boys, right? Um, so you needed to fit in. And so what you did was you bought or you rented what was known as a bachelor's set, right? Now, you might be wondering why um, I've stopped here at this very weird spot. Well, we are outside one of the most exclusive bachelor sets in London, ladies and gentlemen, uh, right through over here, Albany. Now, the reason I say they're very, very private, as you can see from um, the big word private daubed on the road there. Um, the first time I was researching this, play, uh, this, um, uh, this tour, I went in there and I started talking to myself, obviously, outside the door, uh, doing the first stop, and I got escorted off by a quite grumpy. 82-year-old um, uh, watchman. Um, uh, he is very scary. Uh, but anyway, so this is why I stopped here. This is the closest we can get. Uh, Albany, ladies and gentlemen. Um, uh, very, very impressive address to have. Now, it's very important, if you're telling anybody about this, never call it the Albany, right? It's only Albany. The article made the difference, right? Because it was a sign of whether you fitted in society or you were trying to be a part of society, right? Uh, the best people called it Albany. 
Uh, if you uh, if you didn't quite know what you were doing, you called it the Albany. The article made all the difference, right? Uh, Albany. So uh, if you're a bachelor, you rented a set over here, and this is where um, you wouldn't spend much time here during the season, right? You'd sleep here, obviously. Uh, you'd get dressed. You'd come back to change for dinner, all that kind of. Most of your time would be spent out, uh, being seen, um, eating at banquets, riding, all that kind of thing. We'll be talking about that a bit later on in the tour. Um, but this is really the only bachelor step that still remains here in London, and still to this day, it's one of the most exclusive addresses. In London, right? Um, it costs, well, I mean, who knows what it costs? They're, they're quite private. Uh, we know in 2007, one of the bachelor sets, and when I say set, I don't mean like a whole apartment, right? Uh, one bedroom, possibly two bedroom, a reception room, uh, a bathroom, toilet. Uh, in 2007, uh, one of them went on the market for £2 million, right? That was 2007, so I can, uh, I'm sure you can imagine how much it's increased. Um, but the annual rent is about £50,000 for, for one of these small sets. And the rules are very Strict, right? Strictly no women. Sorry, ladies. It's a bachelor set, right? Um, uh uh, and uh, strictly no under 14s, right? No, no, no women, no under 14s. That would not be proper. Even today, even today, even today. Yeah, yeah. As the as the um, as the doorman informed me quite proudly. Um, uh, and um, uh, we we don't quite know what the vetting procedure is, um, but uh, often these sets are given out for below market value because it's about your social connection, right? It's not about how much money you have. It's about who you know, right? And who you know, of course, can get you a set. Um, so these are about, what I love about it, though, it really epitomises high society, especially British high society. It's not gary, it's not gaudish, um, it's, not, it's not in your face. It's just hidden away there, kind of minding its own business. But if you know the space is important, then you're obviously part of the right side. Um, okay, so we're going to move on. We're going to cross the road uh, just over there to Fortnum and Mason, which I'm sure you've all heard about. So follow me across the road. Okay. John, I've just got to ask you, what's the story behind Freddy? Ah, Why the name? Well, I, I don't know where the name actually. Um, he just he just feels like a Freddy, um, uh, and uh, it's the the best thing I like waving around in the air for people to follow. I think if they're going to follow something, follow the rabbit, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay, come in, guys. Come in, come in, come in, come in. Let's get cozy. Um, uh, just keep some space there. I don't want anybody to be run over because they've got to get onto the road to cross us. Okay, fantastic, brilliant. Um, so here we are. Ladies and gentlemen, at Fortnum and Mason, right? Um, you guys have probably all heard of Fortnum and Mason because you're uh, British, right? Um, uh, but Fortnum and Mason is probably, in my opinion, uh, one of the most impressive um, uh, shops in London. Um, certainly, uh, one of the um, uh, one of the shops that provides the best quality of produce here in London. Um, but let's talk about shopping again because I don't think we can talk about the high society uh, without talking about shopping, right? Um, because once again, along with um, the houses that they lived in uh, the high society was defined about where they shopped right and what they bought and um, you know shopping today is a very different experience you know we, uh, we're buying clothes we pop down to H&M or something or Primark or it's all about convenience and uh, and uh, um, uh, you know how, how what a good bargain we can get right that, that's what shopping is about nowadays back then Shopping was a whole different experience. Shopping was an event, 
right? He didn't just pop down to the shop. He went shopping, right? Um, and it was amazing. It, it was great. You uh, had people who helped you shop, of course. Um, uh, people who, who came came along with you and carried all your bags and stuff like that. Um, and, uh, of course, uh, you went to shops that generations of your family had been visiting, right? Um, uh, uh, places uh, that made clothes, uh, uh, provided food, uh, or all products, uh, were old, old institutions, right? And you just went there for your things. You didn't think about, uh, you know, do I go to a Zara or do I go to a top shop, right? Uh, you just went to the one shop. That was the shop to go to, right? Um, and uh, this whole area, St. James's, um, was the premier shopping district, right? Because the rich people lived here, um, people put their shops in, right? It was, it was that simple. Um, and of course, the, uh, the definition of quality for your shop was if you had a royal warrant, right? I'm sure you guys have all seen royal warrants at shops. Um, John Lewis has one, right? Uh, right above the, uh, the entrance, they normally place the coat of arms, um, a, a royal warrant from Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth or His Royal Highness Prince Charles, right? And having a royal warrant was the mark of quality, right? That's what everybody was after. Um, now, the first royal warrant was given out by King Henry II, 1155, um, for, uh, to the Royal Weavers Company, right, to produ produce uh, cloth and clothes for the royal household, right? 1155. Um, and from that moment, royal um, warrants have been handed out by all monarchs, right? One of the most prolific royal warranters uh, was King Henry VIII, right? He loved giving out royal warrants. Uh, from anything for the production of wine, which he loved, uh, to the production of swan meat, which he also loved, right? Um, uh, and Queen Victoria next was a great uh, uh, hand-router of royal warrants, right? Um, now, uh, royal warrants, it's very hard to get a royal warrant, right? You don't just, like, apply, fill out a form and apply for it. Um, there's a special committee that meets in Buckingham Palace. Uh, it's called the Royal, Tra royal Tradesman Warrants Committee, right? And um, you get your royal warrant for five years, and it's granted to an individual, never to an organisation, always to an individual. Um, and uh, they have that royal warrant for five years. Obviously, um, uh, uh, you need to keep up the quality of the produce, otherwise the royal warrant can be taken away. Um, Fortnum and Mason, is the holder of the most royal warrants of uh, any shop um, uh, in the world, ladies and gentlemen. So, so a lot of royal warrants uh, that this shop holds. I think it's eight in total, so it's quite a lot. Um, but uh, Fortnum and Mason, uh, 1707, it was founded by um, William Fortnum. Uh, pretty pretty self-explanatory. Um, William Fortnum uh, worked in Buckingham Palace, right? He was a footman. Um, uh, around the time of, uh, during the reign of Queen Anne. Now, Queen Anne was very fussy, right? She liked things very particular. And remember, back then, they didn't have electricity, right? So every room in Buckingham Palace was lit by candles. Now, Queen Anne was so picky, she decreed that no candle could be lit twice, right? So if a candle had been lit, even if it was just for somebody to walk in and walk out again, it cannot be reused, right? Now, of course, William Fortnum uh, spotted a business opportunity because he thought, <laughs> well, if you light a candle for, you know, an hour, there's still most of the candle left, right? So he started to go around at night collecting all the candles that have been used, right? And, of course, selling them on um, and making a nice tiny profit on the side. Um, his landlord uh, noticed what he was doing. His landlord was called Hugh Mason, right? Uh, he had a grocer's shop. He said, look, why don't we do 
with a little business here. Let's uh, let's start something up. 1707, Fortnum and Mason was born, ladies and gentlemen. Um, uh, a few generations later, a couple of generations later, uh, William Fortnum's grandson uh, is still working in Buckingham Palace as a footman uh, to Queen Charlotte, who was uh, King George II's wife, right? Uh, 1776, um, he uh, uh, obtains the first royal warrant to provide grocery uh, for the royal household, right? And so the real shot, Fortnum and Mason, is born. And since then, uh, here it has been um, as that kind of bastion of quality, great whiskey, great perfume, great clothes, right? Um, uh, I highly recommend, if you've never been inside, pop inside, even just to walk around. It is a real experience, ladies and gentlemen. Um, but around here, this whole area, as I said, um, the most um, con the highest concentration of royal warrants in anywhere in the world. Um, there are some. There used to be, and there still are, some incredibly old um, shops in this area. Um, so some of them. Uh, there was Tomlin's Jelly Shop uh, that used to be just around the corner down there, uh, which was, of course, held, held a royal warrant for providing jelly to the royal family. A very important substance there. Um, uh, apparently, uh, provided jelly of the highest quality and substance. Right. Um, there was Dawson's Fruit Shop, of course. Um, um, uh, had the royal warrant for providing fruit for the royal family. Uh, there was the cocoa tree, right, uh, which had the royal warrant for providing chocolate to the royal family. Um, uh, and drinking chocolate um, uh, was all the craze in Georgian London from 1740 all the way, oh, well, I mean, still is nowadays, right, but um, it really kind of came to the fore, drinking chocolate. Uh, so the cocoa tree was added. And then, of course, you had the clothes shops, right? Um, you had Turnbull, and had, still do have Turnbull and Asser, um, uh, the royal shirt makers, um, uh, Prince Charles and um, seven generations of the male uh, members of the royal family have had their shirts made there. They've made every single um, shirt for all the James Bond films, right? All made at Turnbull and Asser. Um, we'll pass it later on. Um, uh, and um, there was John Lobb, right? Um, uh, one of the original shoemakers, right? Um, you can get a shoe there made for a bargain price of uh, two thousand pounds, starting, right? Uh, starting, uh, of course. The inventors of the Wellington boot. Um, you had James Locke, right, and Sons, uh, um, uh, uh, one of the um, biggest hat makers in the uh, in the country. The royal hat maker as well, inventor of the bowler hat, right, and also inventor of the arm hat which was, uh, for a period of time, uh, a must-have accessory for all men of class and quality, which was a, 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 a hat that was merely held in the hand, right? You never wore it. That was distasteful. Right? You just carried it in your hand, right? And uh, we'll be ending the tour with the story of uh, one great man, uh, and you'll see a great example of the arm hat, right? Uh, so, you know, these are the kind of shops that are around here. Um, consumer society, it started in the middle of the 17th century, but by the, um, uh, by the end... And by the beginning of the Victorian era, 1837, um, uh, uh, shopping was everywhere, right? London itself, by that time, uh, had about three million residents, um, had uh, just London itself had um, 25,000 tailors, right, and 40,000 milliners, right? Just 40,000 different establishments that made hats, ladies and gentlemen, right? So you can, you, you really get the idea of how important fashion was. And of course, if you're a member of high society, how you looked was really, really important. And again, we'll be touching a bit later on. Uh, on We've talked about houses, right? We've talked about where the wealthy uh, lived, where they shopped. 
Now we're going to talk about another very, very important uh, part of high society, which was places that the men went to, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Gentlemen's clubs, right? Follow me this way. You're listening to The Garbage Pod, where your input is our output. I love this stop because we're on quite a busy street, right? It doesn't look very special, right, um, necessarily. But um, the closer you look, the more you spot right? Um, and one of the defining features of high society were the gentlemen's clubs, right? I mean, poor men. They need somewhere to go to get away from uh, their wives, their mistresses. Yeah, absolutely. You know, these poor henpecked men uh, needed, uh, needed a, 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 a safe refuge, right? Um, and that's exactly what gentlemen's clubs were, ladies and gentlemen. There were places where the men of high society could go and, um, you know, feel safe. They wouldn't have to associate with the riffraff outside, right? Uh, they wouldn't have to um, talk to anybody they wouldn't want to talk to. They knew anybody they interacted would be of the highest quality possible, right? And that's what gentlemen's clubs were about. I mean, let's be honest, they were places where quite conservative men who were addicted to gambling, drinking, um, uh, uh, went to spend a lot of their time, right? Uh, that's what these gentlemen's clubs were. But uh, what went on behind these doors was a great example of the real characteristic of the aristocracy, right? And the reason I stop here is we are amongst um, three of, I think, the most interesting. There's about 16 gentlemen's clubs in this area, um, but I'm going to talk to you through three of them, right? Um, the first one is this innocuous looking door with a lantern outside, right? And I think the name is very fitting. It's called Pratt's, right? Um, uh, there we go. Pratt's gentlemen's club, ladies and gentlemen. Um, it's one of the most modern uh, gentlemen's clubs, 1841. So relatively new as far as gentlemen's clubs go. Um, but it has a very interesting story. It's one of the oddest gentlemen's clubs because it wasn't actually founded originally as a gentleman's club. It was founded by somebody called the Duke of Beaufort, right? So the Duke of Beaufort, uh, he was a member of White's Club. Now, White's Club is just down at the end of the road. It is um, the most exclusive gentleman's club, right? Anybody who was anybody had to be a member of White's Club, right? But the Duke of Beaufort had decided that uh, White's Club was a bit stuffy for him, right? He didn't really like it anymore. And the people there uh, were a bit boring. He decided he was going to do something else. So one day, he made a snap decision. He turned up at the house of his steward, William Pratt. Now, imagine, poor guy, right? He spends about 15 hours a day in the company of the Duke of Beaufort, right? Uh, he has to be there when he wakes up in the morning. He has to dress him in the morning. He has to be there all through the day, dress him for dinner, all that kind of thing. Finally, at the end of the day, he gets back to his house. He puts his feet up in front of the fire, right? He's having his dinner, 11 o'clock at night, a knock at the door, right? Who could that be? His wife is expecting anybody he's not expecting his son isn't expecting he thought I'll put it on puts on his slippers opens the door and who was there uh, his master the Duke of Beaufort with 13 friends right and he was like we were a bit bored we decided to come see what you were doing right so in March is the Duke of Beaufort into his house um, and they have a grand old night of it right drinking and gambling and having fun right they have so much fun ladies and gentlemen they come back the next night and the next night and the next night and the next Night. And they keep coming back, ladies and gentlemen, until coming to 
to uh, William Pratt's house is um, is uh, a ceremony. It's just something they do a good two, three, four times a week. Of course, William Pratt had no say in the matter, and neither did his wife Molly um, or his son William Jr. Right? They just had to put up with it. And so Pratt's Gentlemen's Club was born. Now you'd think uh, William Pratt, after he died, um, uh, that his wife would be like, "Okay, no more. Uh, please go away." But no, his wife uh, welcomed back the Duke of Beaufort. I think she spotted a good business opportunity. Um, and to this day, um, uh, Pratt's uh, Gentlemen's Club is right here. Now it's one of the smallest. It's not really built for purpose. It's only got 600 members, but it can only seat 14 at the dining table at one time. Right. So um, the waiting list to have dinner is reportedly over two years uh, long. Uh, just have dinner if you're a member of Pratt's nightclub. Right. Uh, just ridiculous. Right. Um, but one of the most fascinating features of this um, gentleman's club, uh, of course, they have um, stewards who are there to this day, employed as stewards. But you know, it's very hard when you're a man of quality to remember people's names, right? I mean, you can't be expected to remember all of your servants' names, right? <laughs> so a decree um, uh, from uh, Pratt's Gentleman's Club is that all the stewards must simply refer, be referred to as George, right? <laughs> Doesn't matter what their name is, they're all called George, right? <laughs> now, of course, the 1980s happened and something called Equal Opportunities arrived, right? <laughs> and they had to shock horror, employ a female steward, right? They called a committee, because what do they do? They can't call her George, right? Um, what do they do? Um, it, 18 months it took for them to decide they would simply refer to her as Georgina. Right. <laughs> 18 months it took for them to come up with that decision, ladies and gentlemen. Um, <laughs> yeah, anyway, I, 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 you can come to your own conclusions about that. But uh, Pratt's uh, Gentleman's Club um, leads us quite nicely on to uh, this one over here, right? Which is called Brooks um, Gentleman's Come. Now, Brooks is uh, probably one of the most exclusive Gentleman's Cubs. Um, it doesn't even have um, a, a street number, ladies and gentlemen. That's how exclusive it is, right? Um, it was founded uh, by two men, Boothby and James, right? Now, they were these two gentlemen were members of um, uh, White's Gentleman's Club, but they'd been blacklisted, right? We don't know why, but they'd been blacklisted. They were not allowed to go to White's Gentleman's Club. So, in a strop, they formed their own Gentleman's Club, right? Um, and and uh, they bought a house and they invited 27 members of the aristocracy to become a member of this club. And so a rival to White's club uh, was formed, Brooks. Now, this house itself was owned by a man called William Brooks. William was a very popular name back then. Um, uh, William Brooks, um, he made a gamble because the, um, the, the, the house that um, Boothby and James had bought was quite cramped, right? It wasn't really fit for purpose. So he bought this house and he invited um, the, the gentleman's club to come and use uh, these premises, right? And it paid off. Uh, they said they came and looked around. They thought, yeah, actually, this is quite nice. Um, it didn't work out very well for him because he died penniless about eight years later. Um, uh, but uh, they loved the building and uh, they used it. But uh, Brooks Gentleman's Club is uh, most commonly known as the gambling club, ladies and gentlemen, because gambling was a big thing, okay? That's what happened in these clubs. Um, and you would, men would gamble everything, right? Um, money, a whole estates, mistresses, right? They would gamble everything. Uh, massive amounts of money uh, would be sent. In the 1780s, there was actually a petition um, uh, against 
uh, gambling, right? Because it was seen that these men of quality were being corrupted by gambling. And of course, men of the aristocracy were meant to be of the best moral character possible, which I always think is laughable, right? Uh, if you haven't learned anything from this tour, it's, it's the fact that they were not of the best moral character possible. Um, but gambling was a, a big thing. And this is uh, what was one of the most famous nightclubs, uh, gentlemen's clubs, uh, for that. Um, one of the most famous uh, members of this club was somebody called jo Charles Jakes Fox. He was our prime minister um, uh, uh, during the late 18th century. And he was an incredible man, right? Uh, he was a member of parliament for 42 years. Um, but he used to come here. He used to drink. He used to gamble. He used to be up all night. And then he used to leave early in the morning, stumble down to the House of Parliament and make wonderfully eloquent speeches, right? Um, he was an incredible man. But... There is a book of gambling in this gentleman's cup. Nobody really who's not a member has seen this, but there are rumours of some of the bets that were placed, right? Um, one of the bets, um, I'm going to... Uh, this is a quote, right? So, excuse my language, right? Um, but uh, Lord uh, Cholmondley, 1785, placed a bet of the payment of 500 guineas, right? Which is a lot of money, uh, quite a few um, uh, hundred thousand pounds, on um, uh, the receipt of the information that Lord Alburn had taken a prostitute up in a hot air balloon and had sex with her 10,000 feet in the air, right? That was the gamble that was placed, right? Um, so, you know, these are the kind of ridiculous punts that were placed uh, in, uh, in these places. This, you know, those were the good old days, ladies and gentlemen, as they said. Um, so that brings us onto this innocuous-looking building, uh, which is Boodles, ladies and gentlemen, uh, which, after White's, is the oldest gentleman's club on this uh, street. Now, nobody knows much about this club, right? Um, uh, lots of rumours about how long it takes to become a member. We certainly know you need to be nominated by three existing members, and then you've got to go through an election, right? Um, uh, all this kind of thing uh, takes place right over here. But, uh, I mean, um, the, the men who go in here are, you know, off the the really best uh, members of society but this is how um, how well they're treated right if you're a member over there and you hand in your change ladies and gentlemen they make sure that the change is boiled and sterilised before it's handed back to the members before they leave right I mean that's the kind of service you can expect from these gentlemen's cups um, there are loads of these gentlemen's cups down here um, uh, any of the buildings you see which look quite discreet but quite impressive with chandeliers inside are a gentleman's Right. Um, okay, so we're going to carry on now. We're going to go on uh, just into Green Park, ladies and gentlemen. And I'm going to um, uh, tell you uh, the story of what I've mentioned before, the season, ladies and gentlemen. So follow me this way. Um, yeah, it's for a, uh, a podcast I, I do on one of my friends. It's called uh, The Garbage Pod. Um, so he's based in Letchworth. Uh, been going for the last couple of years now. And we just try to cover all kind of various different events. So um, whether it be like local food and beer festivals around Letchworth, Hitchin, things like that, or uh, 
Um, we went up to the Space Centre in Leicester recently to record like a Yuri's Night podcast. So we got taken around the Space Centre in the Rocket Tower. Um, and myself, I do an NFL podcast on so American football, so I kind of do that as well. Yeah, so this is for the Garbage Pod, just because I thought it'd be a great, great chance to get something a bit different. And plus, with some of the listeners, we've got good listeners in Australia, America, places all over, so it kind of works double. So they don't know, know about London. Okay, lovely. Come around, guys. Come around. Come around. So um, here we are, ladies and gentlemen, in Green Park, right? Um, uh, which uh, is a beautiful park. Uh, of course, through the trees over there is Buckingham Palace, um, uh, the residence of the Queen. Um, but, uh, as you may notice behind me, we're outside uh, a pretty spectacular house as well. Now, um, going back to uh, when we were talking about this whole area being uh, populated with mansions <laughs> and uh, city houses, um, this is actually the only uh, remaining privately owned um, uh, 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 mansion house in this area. Um, and it's owned by, uh, it's called Spencer House, it's owned by Earl Spencer, who of course, um, uh, uh, Princess Diana. And, uh, of course, if you remember her, was a part of the Spencer family. Her brother is Earl Spencer. Um, and uh, this is his house. Uh, this is his city house in London. Now, he doesn't live there anymore. Um, it's uh, given out on a 100-year lease at the moment to Lord Rothschild. Um, uh, this is the, his offices uh, here in London. Um, but these mansions uh, were all along here, and they looked out onto what was countryside, right? Um, Buckingham Palace uh, didn't start off as a palace. It started off as a, a house like this. Um, and it was built right on the edge of the development of St. James's, looking out onto beautiful countryside, right? Um, and uh, Buckingham House was one of the most prized of those. Of course, it eventually ended up in the hands of the king uh, because he wanted it, right? Um, and so he got it. But Spencer House was the most famous and um, uh, the most beautiful of the houses. Queen Victoria used to say when she she was the first monarch to actually live in Buckingham Palace, 1837 she moved in. She used to say, I come from my humble abode to your beautiful mansion, right? Uh, that's how famous Spencer House was. And um, this was where all the best balls were, ladies and gentlemen. So, we were talking about the season. Now, according to Debrett's magazine, uh, which is uh, uh, the must-have magazine for all aristocracy, right, the official season started at the beginning of April and ran all the way till June, right? Uh, so it wasn't a long period. It was about three months, right? But it was the time to be seen, right? Uh, put it this way. If you didn't, if you weren't here in London for the season, people noticed, right? And people talked and people gossiped and people would find out. And if you weren't here for the season, you would know about it and everybody would know about it and everybody would find out why, right? It was the place to be seen. You, you came for the season in London and it was a dizzying uh, array um, and schedule. It was exhausting, ladies and gentlemen. You went from banquet to party to, uh, to promenading around Hyde Park. Uh, you, you were here to be seen, right? It was, it was that important. Um, drinking, dancing, singing, um, uh, gambling, all those things we've talked about happened during the season. It was, it was the height of the time to be in London. And of course, the start of the season was a very, very important occasion. It was called the Debutantes Ball, right? And uh, now the Debutantes Ball was the moment when um, a young lady coming of age, 18 years old, was presented to the monarch, right? And what that meant, most importantly, 
she was eligible for marriage, ladies and gentlemen, right? That's what the debutante's ball was all about. Um, it was our, our original version of a dating website, ladies and gentlemen, right? <laughs> uh, a, a girl was shown off to all the eligible bachelors, uh, saying, here she is, she's wealthy, she's got a title, and um, I want her to get married, right? Uh, that, that's what her family was saying. Um, so what I thought would be a great idea, ladies and gentlemen, because I could describe the debutante's ball for you, but what I thought would be best is if we reenact a debutante's ball, right? <laughs> Right. Yeah. Well, we can get a uh, we can get a real uh, real example. So um, I'm going to need a few volunteers now. Um, my parents are in the tour later, so I'm going to use them, right? Because we need a king and queen, right? And seeing as they're probably the oldest people on the tour, they can come over. So, uh, come over here, come over here, right? Um, uh, we have uh, King Jack and Queen Melly, right? Okay, there we go. Stand over here, try to look royal. Okay, lovely. Um, uh, so um, I'm going to need um, two more volunteers, both women, right? Right, both women who'd uh, who'd like to help me out, right? Okay, thank you, Vanessa, and one, thank you, Hannah. Right, lovely. Come over here for me now. Um, can I get all the gentlemen right over here in the middle, right? Uh, just over here, fantastic, perfect. And all the women standing around the outside, right? Um, uh, that's it, gentlemen. Come, come, come in a bit closer, right? So, um, women, you're um, uh, very critical, right? You're judging these two ladies, right? It, it was, it was a meat market, ladies and gentlemen, okay? You wanted the best husband. Um, uh, gentlemen, you're on the prowl, okay, for an eligible... Uh, yeah, exactly, right. So, um, uh, who, who's going to be our debutante? Um, yeah, okay, Vanessa. So, Vanessa. Um, so, um, we would have the chaperone, right? Let's say, uh, let's say Duchess, right? Yeah, Duchess okay. Hannah, right? Um, chaperoning um, Vanessa, her ward, right? Um, so, what would happen is they would enter the state room, okay? Um, now, Vanessa, oh, pretty, would be dressed in ivory or white, right? Um, she'd have three ostrich feathers coming out of her head. The, the, the dress code was very specific. Um, a short sleeved dress. Right, with long elbow length gloves, right, and a little veil. Okay, so um, what would happen now? Uh, you guys can help me here because they would need to curtsy, right? Now, we're all going to do a proper curtsy because it was very important. Okay, um, uh, uh, follow me, ladies. Gentlemen, you never curtsied, right? I'm gonna have to curtsy, right? Okay, so um, uh, you took your right foot, right, and put it behind your left leg. It didn't matter if you were left handed, it was always the right foot, right? Um, uh, slightly up like that, right? Um, making sure you kept your body straight, right? You bent from the knees, right? And you put your arms out like that and a slight incline of the head. Yeah, you have to be very stable, right? Okay, so after me, ladies, uh, ladies let's curtsy, right? And down. Very demure. Lovely, okay, you're all in. So, um, the master of ceremonies would come in, right? He, uh, he would announce, um, uh, I will be presenting Duchess Hannah with her ward, uh, Vanessa, right? So you two would come in like this. You would uh, come round this way. Lovely. You would curtsy, right, to the monarch, right? Um, you would acknowledge them with a, a royal, yes, lovely. Um, uh, Duchess Hannah would probably come forward, um, have a little conversation, because you would probably know her, lovely, okay? Fantastic, <laughs> wonderful. You would then, uh, yeah, 
Fantastic. You will then go back to your ward because you want to leave her, and then making sure you didn't turn your backs on the uh, on the royalty because that you would walk backwards this way. Lovely, fantastic. <laughs> um, and then you would promenade around. Now, gentlemen, of course, you'd be watching them. Uh, you'd walk all the way around that way, and you'd rejoin all the rest of the women, right? Um, and this would start at ten o'clock in the morning, ladies and gentlemen, and often go on till six o'clock in the evening, right? The debutantes ball, and then they would have a big party, right? And that's, of course, when the men who'd been eyeing up the women and the women who'd been eyeing up the men would have the chance to flirt and meet, right? Um, so the beginning of the season. Thank you. Give, give our volunteers a round of applause. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, so the beginning of the season, ladies and gentlemen, was this debutante's ball. And once that happened, the party really got started, right? Um, and of course, as I said, the next, uh, the next few months was all about cultivating those prospects, the marriage prospects. Now, of course, if you didn't get a marriage proposal um, uh, after your first presentation, it wasn't really great, ladies and gentlemen. It was slightly awkward, right? Obviously, you could come back for the next season, but everybody know, knew you hadn't been picked up in the first season, right? Um, and, of course, the more and more seasons you attended... Sorry, ladies. Um, the more and more seasons you attended without a marriage proposal, not really good, right? Until, uh, until you know, you probably reached... Uh, um, awful old age of about 25 and then you were off the books, right? Nobody was going to marry you at the age of 25. Um, that was the harsh reality. But there were great parties, ladies and gentlemen. Um, uh, and uh, Queen Elizabeth, of course, discontinued the debutante's ball, um, uh, part of the modernising culture of the, of, the, um, of the royal family. But, you know, it's a shame. Um, but uh, Spencer House, uh, Spencer House, of course, after that, would be the site of some of the biggest and the best banquets. So, uh, banquets, ladies and gentlemen, they were very important. We're going to talk about them on our next stop right so follow me down this way um, so let's talk about food ladies and gentlemen very uh, perfect right and um, banqueting right now um hang on I, I i have a quote that i wanted to read for you here which uh, i've tried to memorize but it's very very complicated so uh, i can't uh, i can't memorize it but uh, here we go right so this is a quote from a guidebook from 1813, right? One of the first guidebooks written for London. And it says this, Nothing will convey to the stranger a better idea of the vast activity and stupendous wealth of London than a visit to the warehouses, filled to overflowing with interminable stores of every kind of foreign and colonial product, right? That's what London was, ladies and gentlemen. 1813, the British Empire was uh, spreading across the globe and it meant there was an influx of some of the most exotic food produce here in London. Bananas, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, amazing. Chocolate, right? Um, uh, all the other things like silk and lace were readily available. Um, tea, right? Coffee. All these kind of things uh, made it into London and made it into um, uh, uh, consumption, right? Um, and, of course, eating, uh, especially for high society, uh, once again was an event later. You didn't just pop to pret a and pick up a sandwich, right? Um, none of that. Eating, especially during the season here in London, um, uh, uh, meant something, right? So, of course, the day started with breakfast. Um, now, traditionally, the men, um, the men would come down for breakfast, the women would stay up in bed, right? Traditionally, uh, women were served bed and breakfast, right? And the men would come down and take breakfast, which would be a big buffet, right? 
Um, so they could read all the letters and answer them all without being distracted by the women, right? You know, do all the, the, the proper stuff that needed to be done. And then the women could come, come down, right? So um, that was breakfast. Lunch, surprisingly, didn't really become very popular until the Victorian era. Um, often people just skipped lunch or didn't have lunch, right? And then, of course, you had a big dinner, a big banquet. Now, these banquets were amazing. Not only did you have to dress incredibly properly, um, you had to sit where you were told, right? And you were served amazing food. Often four, five, six different courses. So a banquet would always start with oysters, right? Always. If you didn't have oysters, it wasn't a banquet, right? And you didn't chew your oyster, right? That was... No, 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 no. If anybody saw you chewing an oyster, you'd probably be escorted <laughs> off the premises, right? Um, swallowed straight down hole. Um, second uh, course was soup, right? A clear or, um, or a cream soup um, uh, with fish uh, would be served. Third course was meat, right? Meat, vegetables, pasta, bread all together. And then you would end with a pudding, a plum pudding or um, a, a, a spotted dick or something like that, right? Um, and then, of course, you finished with Madeira or sherry wine. Every course had its different wine. There was no such thing as a teetotaler back then, right? You drank, uh, drank, drink. It was as much a part of your banquet as anything else, right? Um, so those were the banquets. Um, and they, they really were uh, amazing, amazing. But of course, the most famous uh, meal uh, that we will have all heard about to do with high society is afternoon tea, right? And afternoon tea <laughs> became an institution. Uh, now, it started uh, around the beginning of the 18th century um, by uh, the Duchess of Bedford, right? Um, and she complained about a sinking feeling in her stomach uh, towards the afternoon. Remember, they didn't have lunch back then, right? So she complained of a sinking feeling in her stomach during the afternoon. We would call it hunger, right? Uh, she described it as a sinking feeling, right? And, and she started to um, take private refreshments of tea and something uh, in her private dressing room at about four o'clock every afternoon <laughs> to, you know, stave away that sinking feeling. Um, and of course she found it worked. She started to have this, um, uh, this uh, ritual in her private dressing room. But of course it was very lonely eating on your own, so she started to invite some friends along, right? This was at her country estate, Woburn Abbey. Um, and now, of course, the season started. She came down to London for April um, and she decided to continue these little private meetings and started to invite some of her friends. Right Now, of course, everybody was watching everybody in the season and the, the gossip started to spread, you know, that the Duchess of Bedford was doing this weird thing, having tea and cake at about four o'clock in her private dressing room. What was she doing? Maybe we should try it. She's, she was very fashionable. Maybe she should do it. Is this a new fashion? Yeah. All these rumours spread, right? Everybody thought, oh, well, we should probably do it. We should probably do it, right? So all the ladies of class and quality started to take tea and, and refreshments about four o'clock in their private dressing rooms. Right? So everybody went back to their country estate. Uh, every year they came back and every year uh, more and more people would take part in the ceremony until one day the Duchess of Bedford thought, you know, everybody's doing it. Why am I having it in my private dressing room, right? <laughs> one day she um, moved down to the drawing room and uh, she took tea and refreshments at four o'clock in the drawing room. And of course, then everybody knew it was acceptable and of the highest class and quality possible. And so everybody then partook of afternoon tea, right? But there was a very important distinction to make because I'm sure many of you have been for low tea and high tea, right? Very, very important because uh, low tea and high tea were very, very different things. So 
Loti was taken by um, the aristocracy at about four o'clock, very promptly, at about four o'clock. Because at five o'clock during the season was the hour you went to Hyde Park to promenade, right? So you would walk around Hyde Park, right? At five o'clock, that happened, right? So you had to take your afternoon tea at four o'clock. Um, high tea, that was low tea. High tea was something different. It was had um, by poorer people, right? Middle class people. Um, and it was taken at about five or six o'clock and it was a substitute for dinner, right? So it was a bit more of a substantial meal. Now, of course, why it was low tea and high tea um, was because of the height of the table, right? So low tea was snacks. It was tea, maybe bits of cake. So it was taken on a low table. High tea was dinner. So it was taken on a high table, right? So you have high tea and you have low tea. Of course, only classy people took low tea. Common people took high tea, ladies and gentlemen. And so that is a very important distinction to make. Next time you go for afternoon tea, make sure what it's saying, right? And decide which group you want to be a part of. Um, now, of course, uh, the, the, the essential ingredient of high tea was tea, ladies and gentlemen, right? Or black gold, um, as it used to be referred to, because tea was the most valuable commodity in Britain, right? Everybody jokes about how we love our tea, right? Um, back then, oh my gosh, I, I can't stress the importance of tea enough, right? Um, now, the first mention of tea uh, was in 1659 by Samuel Pepys, right? And he, uh, in one of his diaries, said that he was going to partake of a drink described as tea, a Chinese drink that he had never heard of before, right? Um, he took tea, he loved it. Uh, of course, by the 1680s, taking tea was uh, a ritual, right? Um, but interestingly, um, at the beginning, tea was only ever served in a coffee house, right? Because coffee was seen as the man's drink and tea was seen as the woman's drink. Tea was feminine, right? Coffee was masculine. Um, but coffee, uh, I mean, coffee came out and uh, people got addicted to it, right? Um, uh, by, uh, in, in 1676, there was actually a petition um, started by some women um, uh, to ban the use of coffee because they said uh, it turned our men into cocks sparrows, right? I don't know what that means. Um, but it turned our men into cock sparrows through the consumption of this unholy liqueur called coffee, right? That was the title of the petition. Um, coffee was not popular. Um, of course, as I said, by the 1680s, it really took on uh, uh, this uh, uh, symbol as quality, the drink of quality in high society. Um, by the 1830s, um, everybody would be waiting for tea, right? Because you'd get one yearly shipment. There was a season for the tea to arrive and you'd get barrels. Of course, by the end of the year, you were like picking up the dregs of the tea leaves from the barrels, the, the not very nice tea. Everybody was gasping for a good cup of tea, right? And of course, um, everybody, all the hotels and um, tea houses would have their own tea clippers, right? And it was a race, ladies and gentlemen, from the first harvest of tea in China to sail over over to get your tea because the first clipper to arrive in London with the tea they could charge astronomical prices because the ladies of highest quality had been without a good cup of tea for a, a year, right? They were desperate. And they would have watch people, watch people in um, on the coast, right, um, to spot the first tea clipper. And as soon as the first tea clipper, um, word would, uh, they'd identify which hotel or which establishment that tea clipper belonged to. And um, the messenger would race to London and uh, within, you know, a day, people 
people knew which establishment would receive the first shipment of tea, and that place would be booked out in a heartbeat, right, uh, for the first genuine good quality cup of tea. Um, uh, Britain started wars for tea, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, the, opium, the opium wars um, that happened over in Hong Kong were all about tea, right? Uh, the Emperor of China, Cheek, decided to put up his tax on tea, right? Um, uh, uh, end of the 19th century. Now, the British were not having any of this, so what did they do? They flooded Hong Kong with opium, right? Uh, which was harvested from British-controlled Afghanistan, right? Um, uh, of course, yeah. So, um, uh, uh, people were, became addicted to opium, and the Emperor of China knew this, and uh, the British used it as a bargaining tool. They, they were like, okay, well, if you don't want us to provide opium, drop your tax on tea, right? Um, the Emperor of China foolishly decided to go to war instead, uh, which, of course, the British won, um, and uh, that's why Hong Kong, uh, of course, was uh, on a 99-year lease to uh, Britain, because we won the war, and we got our rights to tea. Um, that's why it was referred to as black gold, basically. You can understand um, uh, the quality that tea had, right? Um, uh, so just think about that uh, next time you're drinking a cup of tea. You come from a, a long lineage of war, fashion, uh, death, you know, um, uh, petitions, all that kind of thing. Um, so we've got two more stops left on the tour, ladies and gentlemen. I'm going to finish the tour today with two examples of two um, fascinating people, right? Uh, social climbers, right? Two, a, a example of two people who started from nothing but wanted so much to be a member of high society that they fought their way up, right? One did it very successfully, one not very successfully. We're going to finish the tour with the story of those two people, right? So follow me this way. What is the significance of this place? Oh, so, um, this, um, this whole area, and this shop over here that we uh, walked out the front of yeah. is called Berry Brothers. Uh, it's one of the oldest wine shops uh, in the country. Um, and th these buildings are all owned by Berry Brothers. Um, and uh, Berry Brothers is one of the most extensive wine cellars. Um, it, looks, it doesn't look very big from, uh, from the front, but what it's uh, got are amazing cellars below us, right? So the wine cellars for this shop spread all the way down under this building and all the way down to St. James's Palace, right? So when you go in and you ask for a bottle of wine, you think, how can this shop stock all this wine, right? You ask for a bottle of wine, uh, within five minutes they'll have got it up from the wine cellars. Um, uh, one of the oldest wine shops uh, in the country. And so that's what this little area is. But it's public property, so I hope. Um, uh, so I can bring it. I haven't been kicked off yet. This is a restaurant, yeah. I don't know what it is. Yeah, no, lovely. Okay, this is a restaurant, yeah. Crichton, what are you doing, man? Oh, sir, I'm listening to The Garbage Pod. It's a podcast I found in the podosphere. So, um, here we start the tale of uh, one of uh, the people who I'm going to talk to you about. Um, many of you may have heard about her before. A very, very famous woman, uh, Nell Gwynn, ladies and gentlemen, or Pretty Witty Nell, as she was known. Um, uh, probably one of the most famous mistresses of King Charles II. So, King Charles II, I mentioned him at the beginning of our tour. 1660, he is restored to the throne. Um, now, he does a lot of things, right? Now, uh, it's important to remember... Uh, 
the people who invited him back to be king uh, were also the people who beheaded his father. Right. So he was a bit suspicious, uh, to put it mildly. One of those first acts as, uh, as king was to execute all the people who'd executed his father, right? A uh, bit of uh, revenge there. Uh, but he'd grown up in the French court, right? And we all know what the French are like, you know, decadent, uh, um, uh, extravagant, right? Um, especially back then. Uh, and he was, uh, he was, he felt it was his job to restore Br- uh, English spirit, right? And uh, so the restoration was this amazing time of rejuvenation here, especially in London. Um, he brought back the drinking houses, um, but most importantly, he brought back the theatres, ladies and gentlemen. And he allowed women onto the stage for the first time in the history, well, legally, <laughs> uh, for the first time. Uh, in the history of this country. So it was a really, really important um, uh, uh, occasion. Prince Charles, he was a fascinating man. Right? I'm not going to blow his trumpet. I'm not going to say he was uh, a good man. He was a fascinating man, right? Um, he had one wife, he had five mistresses, and he had eight illegitimate children, right? No legitimate children, eight illegitimate children. One of his mistresses, his most famous mistress, and certainly the one that captured the, imi- uh, um, the imagination of the country, was what I like to refer to as the original celebrity later to, to Nell Gwynn. Now, we don't know much about Nell's early life, right? Um, we, know, uh, we don't know where she was born. Um, uh, some say Oxford, some say London, some say Hereford, Gwynn, uh, slightly Welsh name, could be Hereford, right? But we don't really know. What we do know is that her father wasn't around much, um, but her wife, uh, sorry, her mother, um, uh, ran a bawdy house, right? Which is what we would refer to as a brothel. Now. A bawdy house is what they called them back then. And it's uh, probably um, uh, probably certain that Nell Gwynn worked as a child prostitute in that boarding house. Ch- child prostitutes were um, pretty common back then, especially in these boarding houses. Nell Gwynn was almost certainly one of them. Um, uh, uh, later on in her life, when she was the mistress of Charles II, she tried to claim that she had only had one true lover in her life, right? Um, we def- that definitely wasn't true, right? Um, uh, but um, Nell Gwynn probably worked in that. Um, so uh, the restoration, the, the rejuvenation of the theatres happened, um, and there were two companies of actors here in London. Uh, the, the most prominent one, the King's Company, was run by a man called Thomas Killigrew, and he was based at Theatre Royal Drury Lane, right, which is over in Covent Garden, uh, the oldest theatre here in London. Um, and he ran his plays over there. Now, one of Nell Gwynn's mother's friends, right, um, managed to obtain the licence to provide oranges, lemons and sweet meets for um, the audiences of the theatre. And uh, she employed Nell Gwynn, a young Nell Gwynn, 14 years old at that time, to sell uh, the oranges, lemons and sweet meats in the theatre. So that was her first foot in the door, ladies and gentlemen. And somehow she was spotted. Because it was very important to remember, um, part of her job wasn't just selling these oranges, lemons and sweet meats, but it was acting as a messenger, right, between the actresses and the gentlemen in the audience. And that was what happened. You know, they would pass messages and um, uh, organise liaisons, um, whether that was in the actress's dressing room or in one of the boxes in the theatre or at a certain different venue, right? Nell Gwynn would have certainly acted with one of those go-between. But something about her caught Thomas Killigrew's eye, and he thought she would be perfect on 
on stage, right? Uh, some maybe it was her look, her voice, her mannerisms, her wit, right? Uh, he was like, I want her as an actress. Now, it's important to remember, actress, uh, being an actor back then was hard work, right? Um, you uh, were part of the company and you were expected to produce about 50 different productions in a nine-month season, right? So that averages about two to three different plays every week, ladies and gentlemen. So it was hard work. Um, uh, actors and actresses needed stamina, right? Um, and uh, so Nell Gwynn, uh, uh, really, uh, uh, actors and actresses back then were quite uh, competent intelligent uh, people uh, but it's amazing Nell Gwynn coming from this background that she made it in um, she, there must have been something about her right? there was something about her which uh, drew Thomas Gilligrew to her and said she would be perfect on stage and she started off as a comic actor um, uh, she was part of um, a kind of a, a, a set piece which was known as The Mad Couple Right um, now, the Mad Couple was a kind of a, a comic show, um, and it was it was referred to as the Mad Couple or the Gay Couple. Right, uh, Gay Couple, of course, really happy back then. But ironically, um, both uh, both members of the couple were played by women. Right, um, and uh, one of the women played a, a kind of a rapish uh, man, and another played a, a witty kind of bitter woman, and they would spar during the play, but obviously end up together. Um, both played by women, uh, but they would always wear men clothes because that would accentuate their figure more right okay so um, Melgrid um, became a part of uh, the mad couple uh, these plays that would be on and she became the most famed actress in London right everybody talked about Nell Gwynn. Um and it was uh, but you do you've got to feel sorry for um, uh, uh, Thomas Killigrew who ran the, the actors um, uh, uh, troops because it was very hard to keep a hold of your actress right because any actress, especially when she was famed, would be snapped up as a mistress very soon, right? All the gentlemen wanted the best actresses to be their mistresses. They'd offer them a very large salary, right, to come and live in their house or set them up in apartment. Um, normally, mistresses back then would be kept on a street called Randolph Street in Maida Vale, right? Uh, which is where we get the word Randy from. Randolph Street, Randy, that's where the mistresses were kept, right? Um, so it was very hard, you know, a, a, an actress would become famed, everybody would talk about her, and she'd be snapped up by uh, a gentleman, um, uh, put up in a nice flat or apartment, and uh, that would be the end of it, right? And Nelvin certainly used her charms and talents. She was a mistress to, to many men, but she kept on stage, right? Um, and she actually employed a man uh, called George Villiers, right? Um, he was a duke, right? And it was... He was, he was her pimp, right? right? I'm going to be honest, that's what she... It was her, his job to manage her business propositions, right? Um, so any man who wanted to take on Nell Gwynn as a mistress would have to go through George Villiers, right? And one of those men was King Charles II because he'd heard about Nell Gwynn. He wanted her as his mistress. Now, um, one of her mistresses... Um, uh, at that uh, time was called Barbara Palmer, right? But Barbara Palmer was on her way out. She uh, she got too old. She was about 27 by then, right? Um, and uh, the king needed a younger model, right? Uh, and so he approached Nell Gwynn through George Villiers, right? And Nell Gwynn was like, great, that's lovely. She set her price, ladies and gentlemen, which was £5,500 a year, right? Cheap, you may say. That was back then. Today, that was about half a million pounds, right? So that was her price. I will be your mistress 
for £500,000 a year, right? That was her, her annual um, uh, fee. Uh, the king said no. Now, Nelbin had not expected this, right? He'd expected her, um, him to go, yeah, great, OK, let's do it. Um, he took another mistress. Uh, her name was Mary Moll, right? We talked about her at the beginning of the tour. The first lady, the most impertinent slut in the world, who bought a plot of land over here. Nelgrin was furious later, gentlemen, because she was a member, Moll Davis, of the other actors' company, right? The rivals to um, her company. Um, she was so furious, the story goes, that she slipped into Moll Davis's dressing room one night before a play and inserted laxatives into her tea cakes, um, knowing <laughs> that after the play she would be visiting the king. Um, not a very pleasant uh, encounter, I'm sure. Um, uh, anyway, she was very quickly dropped as a mistress. It all came to her head um, in 1668, right? April, April 1668. Um, Nell and the King were both attending a performance of Thomas Etheridge's production. I love the, the, name, the title of this play, right? Because it couldn't be more fitting. The play was called She Would If She Could, right? <laughs> and that was the name of the play. Um, and they were both sitting in boxes next to each other, right? And uh, um, uh, people in the audience said that they spent the entire, um, the entire show flirting with each other, passing each other notes, right? At the end of the play, um, King Charles invited Nelquin to dine with him. He was with his brother, James, um, who was the king after him. And, and so they went to dinner, right? However, the king... He wanted it to be a private affair, so he dismissed all his footmen. He didn't realise, though, because kings, Arist uh, the kings back then, would never carry money with them, right? They would never carry money. That just wasn't the done thing. He dismissed all his foot uh, footmen. It came to the end of the meal. He realised he had no way of paying, right? And so Nell Gwyn had to pay for their oh. dinner, right? Um, and apparently she, um, she replied at the end of the dinner that she never kept poorer company in her life, right? Um, <laughs> Of course, that was the beginning of a torrid love affair, right? Uh, 1668. Um, and uh, it continued for many, many years. Um, she was set up in a house right here, 1671. Um, and uh, again, I mean, this is great. She was such a witty person, Nelgren. She was given this um, this uh, this whole uh, street down there to St James Park is owned by the Crown, ladies and gentlemen. So it's Crown Estate, right? Um, except this building, because Nelgren was given the leasehold on this uh, building. And uh, she was apparently reported to have said to the king when he offered her the leasehold, um, he, she said, I have always given freely to the crown. I expect the crown to give freely to me, right? And so she was given the, the freehold of this land. And so to this day, this building remains the only building on this street that is not owned by the crown, right? 1671, she was set up here. Um, and the year she was set up, 1671 here, she decided to return to the state. She'd retired from the stage right? she returned to the stage for one season um, uh, and this was a big season everybody came to watch Nelgren's last season and said 1671 she was the grand old age of 21 Imagine, by the age of 21, she'd uh, worked as a child prostitute. Um, she had um, uh, become the mistress of the king. She'd borne him two illegitimate sons by this point. Um, she'd retired from the stage. She'd come back to the stage. She was the most celebrated actress, and she was earning half a million pounds a year, ladies and gentlemen, by the age of 21, right? I mean, what a life. Um, uh, but 
anyway, that was her last um, her last season. She then retired here. As said, by this time, um, she bore the uh, king to illegitimate sons. Um, she obtained an earldom for her son, right? Um, now, stories about how she did this uh, vary. But again, great examples of how witty she was. Um, at one point, she um, uh, uh, was uh, uh, meant to have dangled her son out of the window when the king was visiting her. You know, think kind of Michael Jackson-esque. You know, uh, holding yeah. his um, and said, if you don't grant him an earldom, I'll drop him, right? Uh, apparently that was what she said. Uh, one of the stories. Another story was um, apparently the king visited her in a bedchamber and her son, who was also called Charles, was there. And she's, uh, she said to King Charles, was like, oh, come and say hello to the young bastard, right? And uh, King Charles was like, why are you calling him that? And she said, you've given me no other name to call him by, right? Um, and so, whatever, uh, he was uh, granted an earldom, her son. And of course, she lived here until 1687 when she died. King Charles II died in um, 1685. Um, uh, on, her, on his deathbed, he apparently asked his brother to let not, not my poor Nell starve, right? Um, and uh, so uh, she was kept here in this house. Um, she died, of course, of syphilis, right? Uh, 1687. Um, but what's most astonishing, the Beauclerk family, who are descendants of Nell Gwill, to this day are one of the um, most prized members of the aristocracy. The Duke of Beauclerk, uh, Beauclerk is a member of White's Gentleman's Club, ladies and gentlemen. He's, in fact, the chairman of White's Gentleman's Club. I love this story, right? The Beauclerk family started um, from Nell Gwynn, right? The mistress of King Charles II. Now they are one of the most ennobled families in the country. We've all got to start somewhere, ladies and gentlemen, right? There's hope for all of us. Um, okay, so we're going to go on to our last stop of the tour, um, and I'm going to tell you the story of another gentleman. We're going uh, back this way, so follow me this way. And by uh, one of the most fascinating men um, uh, to have lived in Regency London, I think. Regency London um, uh, was uh, 1811 to 1820, and it was when um, uh, King George III got mad. He had to be locked up in Windsor Castle, right? And his son, um, uh, ha- who was to be King George the Fir- Fourth, uh, was the Prince Regent, right? But they, the politicians didn't really want him involved in politics, right? So they um, gave him a large sum of money. He uh, uh, did lots of building work, Buckingham Palace, all that kind of thing and they kept him out of, of court right so he could he could really dedicate himself to pleasure right and Beau Brummel I think is a great example of how that manifested itself in real life right um, he uh, he was an icon of Regency London he was one of the original fashionistas ladies and gentlemen um, people um, uh, uh, observed him minutely to see what he would wear right um, he apparently took five hours every morning to prepare himself Himself, right, and he was so concerned about his clothing that he used to wash his boots in champagne. It's a dead one. Um, he pioneered a new sense of fashion. Um, up until then, um, there was a, a group of men who were known as the Macaronis, right? Um, now, the Macaronis. Uh, really epitomised uh, epitomised everything that was slightly ridiculous about society. Right? They dressed um, very ostentatiously, very pretentiously. They had feathers in their hats, right? Uh, stick a feather in his hat and call him macaroni, right? Um, uh, they um, they dressed ridiculously, right? Um, but by the turn of the uh, 19th century, people people were starting to go off this fashion. And Beau Brummel pioneered something called dandyism, right? Dandy. He was a dandy. Um, he 
And this, this was his dress. He was the first man to wear full-length trousers, right? Um, uh, and uh, calf-length boots. He pioneered the morning coat, right? Um, uh, the cravat. Uh, the cane and what we were talking about earlier, the arm hat, right? Uh, the, the hat that was merely to be held in the hand and never to be worn. Uh, a great example of that, Beau Brummel. Um, now, where did he go? What were his origins? His origins um, were quite as lower class as Nell Gwynn, who we were talking about earlier. Um, he was firmly middle class, Beau Brummel. His father was actually a politician. Um, and he was born in Berkshire, right? Um, and his father, though, uh, decided that he had higher aspirations for his son. He wanted him to be a gentleman. So he saved up money and he sent his son to Eton, of course, which was an instant mark of success. Um, now, uh, at Eton, he instantly made his mark by wearing a gold buckle, right? Uh, there we have his little gold buckle, uh, which still to this day is worn as part of the Eton um, uniform, right? The of, uh, the little buckle started by Beau Brummel. Um, uh, he left Eton, he graduated, he went to Oxford, right? Um, but he didn't really like Oxford, too much studying. Uh, he left at the age of 16. Back then you could buy your way into, uh, into Oxford. He started Oxford. He left at the age of 16 and he decided to enter real life, right? Um, in in uh, 1794, um, he... Um, he started uh, a career in the army, right? He became uh, a member of the 10th Royal Hussars, right? The regiment. Who were the Prince of Wales Regiment. Um, now, he was really playing with the big boys here because the Prince of Wales Regiment, um, uh, they didn't do much fighting, right? They really spent most of their time going around, carousing, drinking, um, uh, causing havoc wherever they went, really. And um, Beau Brummel was now a member of this regiment. Now, his father had left him a legacy of, in today's money, about one and a half million pounds, right? You might think quite a lot. But really, um, to be a part of the 10th Royal Hussar Regiment, that was nothing. Now, most of the men in this regiment would come from landed gentry, right? They had vast amounts of money um, and uh, money and wealth at their disposal. And the 10th Royal Hussars had to provide everything for themselves, right? They had to pay for their own mount, their own uniform. They had to pay their own mess bills, right? So you need a lot of money to be in the 10th Royal Hussars. Poor Beau Brummel, he couldn't keep up with that. He had to come up with another way of, um, of paying his way and his, um, uh, his response to that problem was by worming his way in to become friends with the Prince of Wales, right? He became his closest confidant and once he was the Prince of Wales' closest confidant he could get away with anything, ladies and gentlemen. Um, uh, he really, he had the run of the regiment. Um, he, uh, he, in three years, made it to... Okay. Um, in three years, he made it to the rank of captain, ladies and gentlemen. That was unprecedented. Three years to make it to that rank. Um, and uh, uh, he made a lot of enemies along the way. A lot of other people who thought, well, hang on, I come from better stock, right? Why aren't I at this, uh, at this point? But... Um, uh, Beau Brummel made it there. Uh, and it meant he didn't need to spend a lot of money because he got a lot of things for free. Right? But then disaster struck, ladies and gentlemen, because the 10th Royal Hussars relocated to Manchester. No. 
And Beau Brummel commented that he would never make the move to a place with which lacked such um, culture and civility as Manchester. Sorry if anybody's from Manchester, right? But that was a quote. Um, so he, uh, he gave up his, um, uh, his career in the army and he settled here in London and became a part of society. Now, as I said, he, um, by this point, had become a fashion icon, ladies and gentlemen. People, um, uh, gentlemen of quality, would send their footmen to wait outside Beau Brummel's house um, so that as soon as he stepped out of his house, they would report what he was wearing, run back to their, um, uh, their masters, tell them, and they would change what they were wearing so they could look like Beau Brummel. Right? That, that's, I mean, think of paparazzi, ladies and gentlemen. That's what it was, right? And Beau Brummel pioneered the whole thing. Um, he, he spent, uh, you know, a gentleman's routine back then. It was, it was a hard life if you're a gentleman, right? Uh, you woke up in the morning, you did what you were, um, what was referred to as your toilette, right? Uh, which was uh, getting ready for the day, before Beau Brummel it took him five hours, apparently. Um, you would then go out, you would maybe do some shopping, uh, you would take a ride on your horse in Hyde Park, right? Um, you would then come back, uh, you'd get ready for dinner, you'd change, um, and then you would go out to your gentleman's club um, or uh, whatever that would involve in your evening, right? It was a hard life. Um, and Beau Brummel uh, was there to, to, uh, to really guide it all. Um, now, as I said, gambling was a big part of uh, gentlemen's lives back then. Beau Brummel couldn't afford to gamble. He didn't have the money. But that was because he spent all of his money on clothes, right? So his annual clothing budget uh, was about £800. In today's money, that's about £110,000, right? That was his annual clothing budget. That's, that's what this man spent on clothing every year. £110,000, ladies and gentlemen. Um, but it obviously worked because everybody, um, uh, everybody watched him. Uh, now, that, this all lasted until, uh, whilst he was um, a close confidant to the Prince of Wales, right? Uh, Unfortunately, that didn't last very long. Um, he got too big for his boots, his champagne-washed boots. Um, and uh, the Prince of Wales and him spectacularly fell out. Um, and, of course, that was the beginning of the end for Beau Brummel. Um, there was one day where he placed a bet in White's um, gentleman's club uh, to try and win him some money so that he could live. And uh, he lost the bet. Uh, the next day, he was on a ship to France, ladies and gentlemen. And he spent the rest of his life in penury, in exile supported by little bits of uh, gifts of money from uh, uh, the remaining few friends that he had here. But eventually his debts caught up with him. He was arrested and he died in debtors' prison in, of all places, ladies and gentlemen, Calais. Calais, that's where he died, uh, in debtors' prison. Um, but here he is, Beau Brummel, looking the stylish icon that he was, with this quote, which I love, to be truly elegant, one should not be noticed, ladies and gentlemen. And that, to me, is what high society is about, right? We've, um, we've walked this area today, but uh, obviously behind closed doors, these guys got up to some of the most ridiculous pursuits uh, possible known to man. Uh, but that was behind closed doors, right? Um, everything on the outside uh, was very plain and austere, and the inside was a different story. But the story of Bro Brummel, the story of his life, uh, serves to me as a warning, ladies and gentlemen, right? We had Nell Gwynn. She started from nothing. She rose up um, to have everything. Uh, you could say. Beau Brummel started with nothing, fought his way up, and ended with nothing, ladies and gentlemen. To me, it's a great example. I love being where I am, right? I love standing on the outside, looking in, 
um, watching them go about their lives, spending all their money, doing whatever it need, it, it, they need to to uh, to uh, to keep this society right. Uh, but I look like looking in on the window. I'm not sure I'd want to be on the other side, ladies and gentlemen. You can make up your own opinion. Uh, hopefully today you've got a little flavour of what being part of high society was about, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, whether you approve of it or disapprove of it, I'll let you make your own judgment. But high society, ladies and gentlemen, the defining quality of uh, British life, I think. Uh, anyway, that is the end of the tour today. Thank you very much. Thank for you. Um, uh, it's been a real pleasure being the tour today. Uh, I do hope you enjoyed it. Um, please spread the word about Talk of the Town. Uh, the more people who hear about us, the better, ladies and gentlemen. And as I said, if you've got any questions, please feel free to ask Kay um, or Steph or me. Um, but uh, I, I do hope you enjoyed yourself, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your evening. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. John, can I finish off with a final Yeah, yeah, of course, absolutely. Uh, firstly, just to say thank you very much oh, for a fantastic tour, John. It's much cool. appreciated. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming. Very energetic and very entertaining <laughs> all the way throughout, so your acting skills definitely coming out there. <laughs> I try. I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing. <laughs> oh, no, trust me, it's a good thing. When you make... I always find it's something that I've talked about on the, the podcast before. Like when we had... Uh, we interviewed Gareth Jones. I don't know if you remember Gaz Top. Yeah, 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 uh, Gareth Jones. Uh, we managed to interview him on right. our podcast. Yeah. And the one thing I took from him is that everything he speaks about, he speaks about with such enthusiasm and yeah, passion yeah. and when you've got people presenting in that style then I think more people sure. praise listen it's like well it must be interesting yeah. look how animated and <laughs> I hope so. Are, so I think you're doing a fantastic job a great start I think. that must explain all the people who stop and listen on the street <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the people who wander up whilst I'm doing a tour I did notice actually, did you notice there was a couple right at the very end there so <laughs> yeah. kind of talking and also actually when you're doing your explanation I couldn't help but think <laughs> making comparisons between him and Blackadder yeah yeah yeah, yeah I'm very wondering true. if there was a link there I don't know, yeah, that's something we have to look into. That's but interesting, yeah, absolutely. When you think about, like, obviously, particularly Blackadder III with his ties to the Prince of absolutely. Wales. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Oh, I'll check that out, actually, yeah. But uh, just to finally finish off then, uh, and it's going to be a bit of a tricky one, uh-huh. but if you could disco- uh, describe Talk of the Town in three words... <laughs> yeah. Go for it. <laughs> what three Ooh. words do you used to describe? Okay. Um, one. That's taking now. Pushing the boundaries. Fantastic. There you go. And again, on behalf of the Garbage Pod and all of our listeners, a big thank you to yourself, to Steph, to Kay, and to David. Uh, thank you for allowing us to come along today. It's been fantastic. Thank a real you. pleasure. Thank you for coming. No worries. Spanhead Productions are a small, independent sound recording company based in rural Hertfordshire. We specialise in creating content for all your podcasting needs, whether it be field recordings, fox pops, or capturing the atmosphere during social events. Editing is a very time-consuming job, so Spanhead Productions are on hand to take away some of the burden for you. Just advise us on how you'd like your content to sound, and we will do the rest. We can even help you design and manage a website for your podcast too. Visit us now, spanheadproductions.com. Weebly.com. That's spamheadproductions.weebly.com. During the tour, I was also able to catch up with the main tour guide, John, who you can hear in the sound bites, and also his colleague, Steph. Here is what they both had to say about Talk of the Town London. 
And you know what, it is definitely the parts of London you wouldn't necessarily think of going well, to. Well, that's, that's what I, I guess the idea Yeah, was. that's the idea of showing off, because uh, everybody comes to London and they see all the big sides, right? They see the Buckingham Palaces, the St. James' Palace, the Tower of London, all that kind of thing. But that's, in my opinion, obviously it's beautiful, but that's tourist London, right? Um, uh, this, to me, is kind of proper London. It's real London. Um, it's the bits and pieces that, that you don't necessarily find in your guidebook, but are incredibly important to the history. And uh, the people who lived uh, lived here really define what British society is, right? Uh, everybody knows about King Henry VIII and uh, Queen Elizabeth and all those kind of people, but um, uh, what about all the others that lived and uh, really had such an impact on what it means to be British um, this this is the uh, this is the area we're walking around now so I, that's really what inspired me for the tour is uh, getting to some of those places bringing people on so if I may, so what made you start doing the, the talk of the town and was it the passion for trying to get people to experience like we said the other sides of London rather than the yeah the true touristy side I think uh, I've worked as a tour guide for five years and I do uh, uh, many different tours around London with various different companies um, but I was uh, really passionate, the more I read and the more I research about London the more I realise how much depth there is to the city and uh, I'm really passionate about showing those unseen sides to visitors here and not just visitors to people who live in London and I've had friends who've come on this tour and be like, I've never been there before I never knew that or um, I would never even have thought to go there um, uh, so it's not just uh, visitors, it's, uh, it's people who live here as well. Um, and uh, part of the reason of starting Talk of the Town was to get that output for, uh, for information in an interesting way um, that uh, normally people would just miss. Um, so yeah, and, and just to be able to create some tours and uh, do them in the style that uh, Steph, who's the other tour guide, and I um, uh, like. We're very similar, we're both actors, uh, we're very dramatic, and we're very, uh, uh, we think it's really important to engage people with history uh, and London, not just go around with a guidebook, but to really get that proper flavour um, of what London is. And so that was, uh, that was the start of Talk of the Town. And I think that's something that would be very useful to a lot of our international listeners that have maybe never been over to London yeah. before. They can come and do the sites, but then they should also come and do a Talk of the Town tour just to get a bit more of the history Definitely. and learn I the sites of London they won't necessarily yeah. have seen. I mean, we do tours that cover all the main sites as well, but these are the tours for the people who are interested in seeing that other part of London. Yeah, fantastic. This is Steph, one of the other tour guides for uh, Talk of the Town London. Um, how did you come to get involved with Talk of the Town? Um, well, Sean and I have been friends for a really long time and uh, we basically were tour guides together. We worked for uh, other companies together and um, finally we just sort of decided that it would be uh, a lot more fun to basically be our own boss and sort of decide what we want to do and what we were interested in and um, because we get along very well. Um, obviously we're great at what we do just not to blow my own horn but we are great at what we do um, but the thing is obviously John and I have no head for business at all so we just do the fun stuff in a way um, but we got a couple of other people together uh, notably Kay Holland and uh, David Blundell and they do uh, Kay does sort of the marketing and the 
publication and the writing and uh, David designed our website and he works on all the technical stuff so I think all together we've got quite a dedicated team of four to um, sort of bring something new I think to the, something a little bit more special to the tour guiding market I think it certainly seems to be that way, especially with how animated John is. Actually. Well, yes, exactly, yes. That's something that's very important because I think it's um, a lot of it is not just what you're saying, but how you're saying it. You could be on the most interesting tour with somebody who just doesn't know how to bring it. It's not enough, I think, to just be passionate about the knowledge. It's also about bringing it in a way that other people become passionate about it. That's very important, I think. And um, I think the thing that helps there is that the love that both John and I have for London really comes through in our tours we want people to enjoy it we want people to ask questions to be interested the best thing would be if after the tour they're like can we buy your drink so we can talk about this you know in depth and stuff like that that's sort of the the aim that people are enjoying it and asking questions and was becoming that a subtle hint as well by the way well yes yes by all means if you want to buy me a drink then <laughs> um so that's basically, you know, you've, you've got to be passionate and you've got to be able to share that passion with other people. I think that's what makes a good tour guide. Um, and I think that's something that I hope Talk of the Town is, is very good at and, you know, sort of will bring forth in the tours that we're doing around London and perhaps in other places at some point in the far future. Who knows? So we're on the High Society Tour we at the indeed, moment. Yes. Um, but I understand there's a few other types of tour that you there do as are, well. There are, yes. So we've got... Um, basically what we know is that a lot of people come to London they've got a limited amount of time so one of our sort of core tours is the London 101 where basically we take you around all the iconic London sites not just in the city of Westminster where we've got like Big Ben and Buckingham Palace but also on the other side of the city the real old city which is both John and mine's favourite part of London Um, and we get to see the Tower Monument and uh, Bank of England those sort of things in four hours brilliant you've done it you've done half a day of London and then you get to sort of discover whatever else you want to do you know we have a small break in the middle and hopefully that sort of tour will get people um, you know get their first sort of impressions of London tick those boxes that they want to have in an engaging way and then they'll be able to explore if they've only got a limited amount of time throughout the rest of the city and then the other tour that we do is um, we've got a grim tales of London because of course no no tour company um, is complete without at least telling you something uh, about the slightly darker nature of London. Um, and it's not just Jack the Ripper, which I think uh, a lot of people do know about, but it's also about the execution methods that happened and, you know, the, the plague pits, the, uh, you know, uh, the fire that ravaged the city. There was, and, the, of course, the haunted... I mean, the Tower of London is reportedly the most haunted building in, the, uh, in England. So, you know, I think there's a, a, a lot to offer there as well for somebody some people who want slightly a slightly edgier tour perhaps um, and then of course we're affiliated with uh, Muggle Tours uh, which is a wonderful company that does Harry Potter tours so you know we're both huge Harry Potter fans as well so that was a great opportunity for us as well so. nice work yeah so does that mean you get to go on like a free tour it's kind of well no actually we give those tours as well oh, do so you? Uh, yeah yeah so we we'll work with uh, with Hannah and Puyan from Muggle Tours and um, uh, they've been very good to us and so we were like you know, great, we can do something for you as well. So we're affiliated with them, but we also get to give those tours. So yeah, and I mean, we're always on the lookout for new things. There are a couple of tours in the works, like uh, a a food tour, like a market tour. Um, And I'm very interested in underground London. So that's something that I'm working on currently at the moment. Uh, So like Hidden Rivers of London, you know, Tales of the Underground, the Roman City and stuff like that, because that makes up a huge part of what London is today. So fingers crossed that that's going to come in the next couple of months. 
Okay, so when do you officially start tours? Would this be the official first this tour? Is, or yes, you... yes, it is. Yes. So um, we've been sort of we've had a soft launch throughout um, uh, July, where we've sort of you know worked out how we're doing it. We've launched the website and made sure that everything's as it should be. And now, obviously, we're trying to present it and getting the word out there and trying to encourage people to come and perhaps uh, walk on a slightly different street of London that they are used to, that they normally know. Um, that's hopefully what we'll, what we'll be giving them, and that's what we're trying to do with this respect. And so they can go onto the website and start booking these tours now? Straight ahead, yeah, they can... Uh, yeah, so it's all on there, uh, dates and times, and um, if they're interested in something a little bit more in advance or whether they want private tours or specialised, we can do that too. We've got a wealth of knowledge between the two of us, and you know, we're more than happy to tailor any tour to, um, to whoever needs it and specifics and what they want and everything like that. So. Oh, excellent. We'll put a link to the website in the show notes for sure. Great, excellent. Thank you. Well, I hope you've all enjoyed the sound bites from the High Society tour as much as I enjoyed the actual tour itself. With that in mind, I would like to say a big and massive thank you to the Talk of the Town London team. John and Steph, the tour guides, and also David and Kay who work behind the scenes for them. It was a fantastic trip. And I strongly recommend everyone checks out their website, www.talkofthetownlondon.com, where you'll find information about Talk of the Town London and also how to book tickets and book tours. For example, the High Society Tour, you can get the tour and afternoon tea for £19.50, which I think you'll all agree is very reasonable for a two-hour tour and afternoon tea. And uh, don't forget that you will also find uh, some information also in our show notes. Now, um, I'd also like to, to thank young Adri here for, for bringing this to us because um, this is something I wouldn't have known anything about and um, I'm, I can guarantee you guys wouldn't have heard anything about it either. So it's always good when something like this uh, is exposed to the public like this because um, these these tours are absolutely wonderful because I've, I've been on similar tours of other uh, cities and I've really enjoyed it so from from what I've heard Adri had a, a whale of a time uh, on this on this occasion yeah uh, both fantastic tour guides as obviously John was the main tour guide on the evening and um, for the for the launch tour absolutely sound bloke great tour very enthusiastic you can tell from from what you heard that he is an actor as well by profession but in general it was a really enjoyable tour trying to encourage people to ask questions filling them in on information any questions they had during the tour itself was answered as well and it was just a really enjoyable evening and, and great company to be in as well that's brilliant so um, I think that's where we'll, we'll end the show but before we, we go I'd just like to mention that uh Keep tuned to the Garbage Pod uh, for news of our new venture, TGP Nominal, where we will be taking you to infinity and beyond. Well, I guess that's it. As, as a pleasure, sir, it's always wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you very much for having me, boss, and it was a pleasure to bring this new venture to your attention. As I know, on the Garbage Pod, we do like to support all new and local ventures, and technically, we're only about 30 miles outside of London, so it's local. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> 
Well, that about wraps it up for this episode of The Garbage Pod. Visit www.thegarbagepod.weebly.com for the show notes for this or any other episode of The Garbage Pod or TGP Extra. Just look for the podcast section in the menu. While you're on the website, why not have a nose about? You can find a little bit more about me and the rest of the crew and find out what's going on in the podosphere by reading the blog and much, much more. Let us know what you think of the show. Send an email to garbagepod at virginmedia.com. Because your input is our output. Or you can use the social media icons at the top of the website, which include Twitter and Facebook. If you would like to subscribe to the show, you can do so via iTunes, the RSS feed, TuneIn and Stitcher On Demand Radio. You can also listen to rebroadcasts of the show on the 1800 Online Network at www.1800online.weebly.com. If you look on the right-hand side of the podcast page, the blog or the video vault, you'll see a little button there that says Donate. If you like what we do and you feel that you could give us a little something just to help us out a bit, we'd be most appreciative. And don't forget to spread the word about us. Thanks for listening, and I'll speak to you again soon. Take care. The Garbage Pod is a Spamhead production.